Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality and attempt to merge the two as they were once in ancient times. Before we get started with our topic for today, it's time for our What Happened on This Day segment. And this week, I'm going to pass it over to Felicity. So, Fel, go ahead and take it away. Alrighty. So, what happened on this day? In 1944, John Rock, an American obstetrician and gynecologist, fertilized the first human egg in a test tube with the help of his associate, Miriam Mencken. After substantial efforts from the previous 15 years and insights from fertilized eggs from discarded hysterectomy tissues, Dr. John Rock, best known for his assistance in developing the birth control pill, and his associate, Miriam Mencken, fertilized the first human egg in a test tube, providing crucial understanding of contraception and its requirements outside the human body. I thought that was wild. I literally knew nothing about that. (laughs) I was just like, this is so cool. The things that happen on random days of the week that we don't even know about. So today's topic is on the placebo effect, as you might have guessed from the reference in the title, which is from Harry Potter, by the way. Oftentimes people claim that magic is really just psychological and nothing we do changes anything. But that, to me, begs another question, which is that if it is all fake, a placebo, does that make it worthless? If that question interests you and you have thoughts and you want to hear us discuss it, go ahead and keep paying attention and we're going to get into it right now. So I think the first thing that we need to do here is define what a placebo is and what it's used for. Hanny, I know you were looking at the general history of placebo effects, so do you want to start us off there? Yeah, sure. So the word placebo comes from the Latin for I please, um, and the effect was first discovered in 1799, although it wasn't really formally quantified until 1955 when we started running clinical trials. So we've talked briefly in the first episode about controls in the context of scientific studies, but when we're thinking about clinical trials, how are we going to put a control in place when we're studying living creatures? Placebos are basically a negative control, where you give a sham treatment, something with no active effect, which is designed to test the effect of just giving it an intervention of any kind without any kind of active ingredient. And the reason we do this is because the human mind is quite a funny thing. And being administered any kind of intervention can sometimes appear to produce a positive effect, even if it's not happening via the expected biological mechanism. So it's a way for us to control for, for the effect of the human mind, if you like. So why is it that we have to give this? Why don't we just not give the treatment to our negative control group? I So I love the topic of the placebo effect. And the really interesting part about it to me is that is like the impact that telling the negative control group can actually have. And this is one of the reasons why when we talk about doing placebo studies, we always mention this, this idea of like blindness, right? Studies have been done that show varying effects when people know which group they are in, the one receiving the drug or the group receiving the placebo. And this psychological phenomena makes interpreting the results really difficult because it plays a role in how the patient perceives changes. But not only that, it can also possibly affect how the interpreter analyzes the data if they give more importance to the data from the group that had the actual drug versus the group that had the placebo, even though they're both important. So introducing this topic of blindness 
into a study essentially means that you remove any ability for someone to predict and thus experience fake results because they don't have any idea what is actually happening. This is typically divided into a couple of different categories, but the primary ones are single blind trials and then double blind trials. It might be kind of obvious, but I'll state it anyway. Single blind trials are when only the patient is blinded, meaning that only the patient doesn't know which group they're in. But double blinded trials are when the patient and the investigator both together don't know which group each individual patient is is in. In my personal opinion, I think double blinded trials are probably the most accurate and beneficial ways to go because it truly does remove as much prejudice as possible from the data analysis. But some people claim only the patients matter since they are the data that we're analyzing. But that's why it's so important not to tell the negative control group what that they are in that group because it can lead to certain side effects that might not have any biological relevance to the particular drug or treatment being given. And the other thing to mention is that there are different types of placebos. So you might simply be given a sugar pill, so as an alternative to a drug with an active ingredient. If we use vaccines as an example, because that's quite prescient at the moment, you can imagine you might be given a vaccine against a virus. You might be given a saline injection. So that's an injection that has nothing in that's going to cause an effect. Or you might be given something like a meningococcal vaccine. So that is a vaccine which gives a immunity against a bacteria that has nothing to do with the virus. So you're still getting an immune response, but it's nothing to do with that which you're actually testing for. And that's basically because patients can actually unblind themselves quite easily if they are looking for symptoms. So that if they're, if they're looking for you know, fever and things after they've been administered a treatment, then they might affect their own outcome. So as you can see, it's quite subtle, it's quite nuanced, and the concept of placebo can also be applied to the spiritual realm. Yeah, magically speaking, in my opinion, a placebo is something like tea without intention, or coffee in my case, or drawing a sigil onto a paper and not charging it, or drawing it without like will or intent behind it. Really anything without intention or any kind of like energetic push or charging behind it could be considered a placebo. It's just an action taken that has no like magical intent tied in with it that could actually lead to like specific change. So in that case, it's more of a reminder and a psychological effect in that regard. But um, do we also want to touch on maybe, we've talked about placebo a lot thus far, but there's also a different kind of placebo effect called a nocebo that we should probably touch upon. Yeah, so a nocebo effect is basically the opposite. It's where you get, when a patient expects a harmful or negative effect, then they will experience that. So maybe they're expecting to receive, receive really bad side effects from getting a vaccine and they end up getting a headache, even if they didn't actually get the vaccine, they just got a placebo. So yeah, it's basically, it's, it's, it's the same kind of concept where if a patient expects something, then they'll actually end up experiencing it, even if there's no biological reason for it. And something else I wanted to add while I remember is this all kind of applies to a more sort of psychological model of magic and occultism. And I, I guess I was just curious what your your perspective on that is and whether you subscribe to a model like that or whether you're you're a little bit more skeptical about this kind of placebo effect. Belle, why don't you go first? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, so my own perception of the placebo effect in the spiritual realm and how it can like affect that is a pretty complicated history for myself. So like when I was first starting out in my 
spirituality, I had a really hard time believing in anything just because of the background that I was coming from. I sort of had to really cut all ties with it. And so therefore it made belief hard. So one of the things that I, I did to still engage in spirituality was sort of subscribe to the placebo notion within magic and spirituality. So like the idea that if I am doing a money bowl, for example, the act of making the money bowl would then subconsciously, like if I believed that I was, I don't know, if this money bowl is going to, I don't know, get me more money, like a job or something, then I would be telling my subconscious to then go out and like seek this job. So in some ways I did subscribe to it and now it's a lot more complicated <laughs> and I'm not quite sure how I view the effect of like placebo in the spiritual realm just because placebo is just so wild. Like I did not know that nocebo was a thing. <laughs> I was reading that in our notes and I was like, wow, I have never thought about that before. And it's really interesting. So I have OCD and one of the problems that I come into is when these obsessions are like, tell me, oh, if you don't wash your hands, you're going to get sick. Or if you don't wash your hands X number of times, you're going to get sick. It then becomes a very complicated line to walk because I can almost nocebo myself into becoming sick. So I have a very complicated relationship with placebos and nocebos, as I now know that sort of the negative is called. Yeah. That's not really a solid answer, but I don't really have a, a solid position on how placebos fit into my own practice. I, in some ways, I do consider magic to be a lot of placebo effects. And it's mostly because I think there are things that we do within our crafts that aren't full spells, but we do to help us like feel better or just change the energy. So um, specifically, and we'll, we'll touch on this a little, little bit later in the episode, but something like the kind of tea that you drink in the morning, even if you don't stir magical intention into the tea, which would make it in, you know, the previous definition, a certain type of placebo, like the kind of tea that you choose and the herbs within it will elicit a kind of specific energy or like feeling. It might even have some physiological properties like certain herbs do and then benefits as you drink it. But for instance, I have one of my favorite teas is an orange cranberry tea. And when I drink that, I feel happy. And that's, that's more so like an, a placebo effect of just drinking the tea. I wouldn't necessarily attribute it to the contents within the tea specifically. And then also when it comes to like colors, right? Looking at a color and seeing that when I see the color red, for instance, my first thought goes to like confidence, you know, feeling sexy and like a bad bitch and all of these kind of things. And so if I were to wear that color during the day, like those feelings would penetrate and kind of affect like my mood and energy throughout the day, which in and of itself, if I don't charge it, like if I don't dress necessarily with the intention of like red for a specific reason, then that effect, that like that psychological effect is something that I would deem a placebo effect. But yeah, that's kind of how I think about it in terms of my magical practice. But what about you, Hanny? I would say I'm kind of agnostic to it. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm like full, I'm not like full psychological model. You know, I don't think that everything is just like a product of my own mind and my own kind of beliefs, I guess. Does, does that make sense? Like, I, I don't think that, oh, well, it's just a placebo, but I've kind of placeboed myself into believing it. So works I, I think I, I do like, literally believe that there are gods and there is there are you know is divinity that I am interacting with so 
in that sense, I don't think placebo is so relevant to that side of my practice, but I also do see how it can be useful for kind of setting yourself into the right mindset. And particularly for spell work, which is something that I guess I do less of, I can also see how it's useful. And I guess we're going to get into this in a bit. But yeah, the idea of correspondences actually is quite heavily influenced by placebo and culture. So yeah, I think I think it plays a role, but I don't think it's kind of the be all end all, if that makes sense. I agree with that. I think with some of the larger aspects of occultism, like, you know, deity work, if if you um, participate in that, for me, kind of my um, overall view of like how things, how magic works scientifically doesn't fall within the realm of the placebo effect. I'll touch on that on a, on a later episode. But so yeah, like kind of the bigger things, um, I don't attribute necessarily to placebo effect, but it's much more the smaller things in my personal practice that I do think are similar to a placebo-like effect. Based on that, actually, Hannah, we were talking about this earlier, but you said that you once participated in this study based on how easy pills were to swallow based on their flavor, size, and color. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because that's like a perfect example of the placebo effect. Yeah, so basically when I was in my undergraduate uh, degree, I was very poor (laughs) and I was participating in loads of scientific studies just to earn a bit of money. So some of these were kind of harmless and it was just like playing games with Peter or whatever, but some of them were at the Pharmacology Institute. And one that really stuck with me was one where you would turn up and they would give you different pills. They were all sugar pills, bear in mind, but you had to rate how easy they were to swallow. Yeah, based on their their flavour, their size and their colour. So some of these things like the colour, it shouldn't really have an impact on how easy it was to swallow, in theory. The size, you can imagine. And then the flavour was, in theory, to alter how much like your mouth was lubricated. But it was weird because the authors were, were saying to me that the, the colour actually does have an impact on how much and on how you perceive the flavour. And so they were basically trying to find the, the perfect intersection of these things where you have a biological effect from the, the flavour and the size so you have, this, you have the psychology of somebody thinking, oh, this is going to be easy. This is going to go, go down quickly, particularly for children, I think. So, yeah, it was it was just kind of interesting to me that they were not only considering like the physical attributes, but also how somebody is like mentally going to interact with their pills every morning. And I know that there are other studies as well where pharmacological researchers have found that certain colours of pills will denote kind of more sedative effects. So blue is often used for more sedative pills. And orange is kind of used for more stimulating pills. And there's like a lot of research that goes into this just to make pills as effective as they possibly can be. And I think that's really interesting when we think about cultures, because cultures might not necessarily have the same associations with colour. And so when we think about placebo and also when we think about correspondences across cultures, they might vary quite a lot. Um, I'm just curious what you guys think about that and how that applies in terms of correspondence lists that you often find online. It's so interesting mentioning the psychology of color. I remember I first learned about this in in middle school. We did like a little psychology of color mini session in my art class. And I don't know why it was one of the things that stuck with me the most. It was just fascinating because some of it is, I mean, a lot of it, I should say, actually, a lot of it is cultural. Some of it, though, is weird and kind of like transcends culture, like especially when you get into weird colors like Pepto-Bismol pink. They actually found that that color can be calming, which you would not think by looking at Pepto-Bismol pink. Pepto-Bismol pink makes me want to gag because... Yeah, because (laughs) our brains associate it with being sick. (laughs) Yeah. 
So color specifically is very interesting. I do think almost, I don't want to say almost all, that seems very uh, wide sweeping. I would say a large portion of our color correspondences are, are more cultural than they are psychological. So that becomes really interesting then when you're picking what colors to use in spell work or even what color you're picking for to paint your walls a lot of that has to do with our cultural associations so for example my walls in my apartment are pretty much all white and now when my grandmother saw that she was like oh it stresses me out whereas she her house was built in the 60s so it has some gnarly wallpaper and to me i'm just like wow that makes me stressed looking at it but to her the association is home so it feels more like it feels calming to her so I think culture and placebo really really mix when we talk about colors especially when it comes to like clothing that you're picking or wall color or even just how you're organizing your altar what you're putting in a bowl for example so I think it's really interesting yeah, that's cool, because I was, I was reading about this and I found a study that suggested that Caucasian Americans saw white, white capsules as more likely to kill pain, whereas African Americans saw black capsules as more likely to kill pain. So there's kind of some cultural variation there. And it got me thinking about like correspondence lists in witchcraft. And basically, those are kind of used as a, as a guideline or a framework for lots of people. And I'm just wondering what, whether you think those are kind of quite universal or whether you think that they should be more personalized because it's all about like our own culture and our own experiences. You touched upon a point that I was going to bring up, which was that this is why I take great issue with some of the more standardized like books of spells. Like for instance, the encyclopedia of like 5,000 spells or whatever it's called. I think a lot of times any attempt to standardize a particular spell across a varying you know number of traditions and cultures becomes really difficult because of the differences in correspondences and how they might mean one thing to one particular tradition and something else entirely to another. Actually, this topic came up in a Discord server that we're all in, and Fel mentioned it, which was this idea of banishing and warding and how in some traditions those are considered things that like the practitioner should be doing to keep up on like the hygiene of their home and themselves and their practice. But in Hellenism and um, Handy, maybe you can speak to this as well. Doing that is considered a kind of affront to the gods because like they are the ones protecting you. If I mess that up, please correct me. Uh, I, w- I would have go so far to say that it's an affront in any deep offense sort of way, because there are like, okay, oh, I always mess up this word up. Apotropaic, I think is the word. Guarding images like the evil eye. So like there is evidence of that. But like the idea of doing a ward and sitting down and casting a ward is pretty foreign to like classical Hellenism. And the idea is that you don't necessarily have to do those things because the gods are supposed to pretty much be your ward as long as you're, you know, pious and make offerings, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So that, yeah, that was something I mentioned in a Discord, and it took me so long to get the point across. But yeah, my, my main question there was just my belief that this works. Is that enough to make it work? Like if other people do warding and I don't, is the fact that I believe that my gods will take care of it, is that enough? It was hard to phrase, but I think it kind of kind of dances around this topic as well. Yeah, so that that's just a little clarification on that. Yeah, I definitely do think it it kind of falls within this topic because there's also like not 
by no means am I saying that like the belief in the gods protecting you is a placebo effect. I don't think that's true. But the belief that you are protected in that way and of it's is kind of a placebo effect because you believe it and so it's true to you, right? I do think that there is like divine intervention there because like, I believe in divinity, obviously, since I'm a hermeticist. So I believe, believe, believe in at least some form of it. But yeah, I mean, that would be interesting if you consider that as a type of placebo effect as well. Something I was thinking about as well was, because I guess we've been talking a lot about, like, personal experience and how culture can in- interact with the correspondences that you find useful. And I was thinking about how universal things are and things like syncretism and are there universal correspondences that we can say? Like, I know, for example, sage is used for cleansing across lots and lots of different cultures. I don't know if there are any other examples of it like that. I'm just I'm just curious whether any kind of universal correspondence and whether we can consider that like a human condition or whether that there's something more innate to that substance. What do you guys think? That's a really, that's a really interesting question. And I, I was thinking too about, the universality of color correspondences and like what really is like what's the (laughs) where's the line between something that is just so ingrained in culture versus what is I don't know I like the sort of you mentioned like syncretism and I think it I, I feel like there has to be on some level for certain things like you mentioned sage there has to be on a certain energetic level this property because otherwise I feel like at that point if everything is just cultural and everything is like because you associate this with that, then then what does anything mean? Don't remember if I brought up Thorn Mooney before, but I'm gonna bring her up now. You know, if everything changes, what good is tradition? I feel like it sort of sometimes gets into to that question of like what is like because there is like verified gnosis and then there's shared gnosis which i think is what happens with a lot of like color correspondences where a lot of people are like yeah this is what this is to me and then there's just specific to you i don't know now i'm thinking a lot about this <laughs> i feel like certain things though there is an inherent cleansing property let's say whereas other things don't necessarily have that and would have to be like charged with that intent but I don't know, it's really hard to try to see where where culture and spirituality intersect and and like what's is anything inherent. I don't know. I mean, so in regards to the to the sage question in particular, like sage is known to have antimicrobial properties. And allegedly, I can't speak to the scientific accuracy of the statement. When you burn it, you release some of that, those anti, like those antimicrobial properties into the air through like the smoke of the burning plant. I don't know how legitimate that is. I would have to do further research on that. But I think that's where some of these these very common and like standardized correspondences come from are like some science, there is some scientific basis behind that. Kind of the same thing with like certain scents, right? We know that certain scents cause the transmission of certain like neurotransmitters in our brain, which lead to certain feelings, certain activation of specific receptors. And so a lot of those things have like scientific basis behind it, but I think a lot of them also don't. And that's where the placebo effect comes in mind to me. In fact, I think it's interesting that things like orange and yellow in terms of colors are associated with being happy and positive or you know, even clean. And in terms of like smells associated with that, you have things like oranges and lemons, which are often found in cleaning products or like, I don't know about anybody else, the smell of citrus just makes me happy. Like I, I really enjoy it. 
Um, and so I associate those things very much so with like being happy and being positive. I'm going to return to colors for a second because I do want to mention, and this this might not be a popular opinion, I suppose, but I I don't think that like colors, they're not actually doing anything, right? And I, this is also true because the colors that we see are simply, it's simply a reflection of light. We don't see colors in the way that like we actually visualize and interpret them inside of our, like inside of our brains. And so it's not the colors that are really doing anything necessarily. And that's why I consider it to be a placebo effect because even the idea of color is skewed because we're not actually seeing it. It's simply a reflection of what wasn't absorbed by a particular object. What do you guys think about kind of that like going more in depth into kind of color theory and light and all of that can you imagine how many correspondences you could have if you were a shrimp because they can see like 12 colors (laughs) 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 um yeah that's really interesting actually I know I had never thought about that I guess it kind of comes down to whether you believe it is more of a like actual physical thing so I know a lot of people kind of put stock in this idea of sort of vibrations so obviously light is a a wave and also you know photon flow so whether somebody's actually thinking about the physical properties of that or whether they're thinking it's like a way of kind of interfacing with the world and I I think I I kind of subscribe to the latter a little bit more so yeah it's a little bit more malleable and yeah how would a colorblind person interpret these things for example it just becomes very muddy so yeah that's that's an interesting thought I, I think yeah, for me, it is more based in the mind, based in associations. I guess it comes back to this idea of like culture in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel very similarly about color in particular because like color, it is a thing, but it's also like a reflection of wavelengths. <laughs> so it's also not exactly tangible. So to me, color is most important with setting intention, which is why I personally don't find it as big of a deal that there are like nine million bajillion different color correspondences. Now for me in particular, a lot of uh, Apollo, for example, is known as the one of the silver bow. So like silver specifically is mentioned. So certain colors are like, in the canon of different paths are written in with certain deities but for the most part like red being associated with love is a very is a very cultural culturally specific thing and so it's interesting because i've mentioned before that i do a lot of natural dyeing so this gets really interesting because when i use natural dyes in any sort of magical way i don't go based on the color i go based on what i'm using so you base it more off of like whatever plant or right. like matter you're using to dye it? Okay. Yeah. Or it's like a combination in, in a way, which is why I don't like working. Like I don't work with indigo part, for many reasons. Like indigo is often very over farmed and it's extremely temperamental. And I prefer working with dyes that are specifically grown in New England, for example, or things that can grow in New England just because it just, I don't know, it's a way to connect the land to me. So if I'm using mint, now mint is great in that it actually dyes the same color that the plant is. <laughs> if I'm doing money spell work or something, mint might be a good one. Because for me, I kind of associate mint with both cleanliness and also the word mint. Also, there's like, you know, mint as in a, a money-based thing. So yes. that way that's nice where they're sort of blended. Whereas like think uh, avocados, <laughs> where it's drastically <laughs> different colors. Uh, but even then, if I were to, I don't really, I don't use avocados in spell work, but if I were, I would base it off of the plant and because I, yeah, and then use that mm-hmm. instead of the color. Exactly. 
I'm going to say it's extreme like galaxy brain level correspondence that avocados actually come out as millennial pink. Like, do we not think that that is magic in itself? <laughs> I know. It's so funny. Oh, I love it. The avocado was like, I might be ugly on the outside, but really, if you use me, I turn into this beautiful pink. Yeah, I do think that's that's really cool though. It's really, it's really interesting how yeah, it's 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 a more it's it's more than the color. I think colors maybe make their way into a lot of I guess like witchcraft based resources because they're easy to put in infographics. Is that a little bit too spicy a take? I don't know, but yeah, they, they're, it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's about the whole physiognomy of the thing, and so yeah, they're useful, but maybe they are more a reflection of culture and a reflection of your personal experience than anything else. I think at least. So I have a question that might lead to a hot take. What are your thoughts on crystals then? So it's my personal belief. And again, it's fine if, you know, any of you or any of our listeners disagree with me. To me, they're just stones that have certain vibrational properties based around their crystalline structures, which we know exists like scientifically. But I don't think that these vibratory properties can be transferred to us as people. And so because of that, Crystals, in my opinion, are another good example of placebo effect based on correspondence. So black tourmaline, for example, we know that that's, you know, well known for assisting with protection. But like, does it? I don't, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I've only held black tourmaline, I think, twice in my lifetime. But like, I don't know if it actually helps with protection. Like, is there any scientific basis behind it? I have no idea. But that correspondence that is accepted by so many people is enough to elicit a feeling of being protected while wearing it. And like, to me, that's a placebo effect. But what is, what is your opinion on crystals in general? So I <laughs> I have a lot of opinions on crystals. Go for it, Val. I Yeah, crystals have never really been a part of my practice. People would give me, and a lot of that is that I have a very scrambled brain at times, so I just don't do well remembering, A, what, what the heck the crystal is, <laughs> what it looks like, and what it's supposed to do. Pretty much the only crystals I ever use ever are sea quartz that I've gathered from the ocean myself. <laughs> It's really interesting the way that you mentioned that you think it's sort of an, a placebo effect. And I'm starting to realize, I think, and it seems to me in some ways, things like colors and crystals can be helpful in intention setting, but are not necessarily helpful themselves. Not that they're not necessarily helpful themselves, but they're, they're, they serve more as a, as a reminder and a tool than they're not necessarily going to help you do something more, if that makes sense. A lot of people don't realize that the usage of crystals does not stem from the modern witchcraft movement of mm-hmm. the 1940s, 50s. Like it doesn't stem from that whole movement. It stems from the New Age movement of the 1960s and the 1970s. It's one of those things that got transferred over that people don't really realize it got transferred over. So like it's not to say that rocks and other certain actual earth matter wasn't used historically. Like marble would be a good, I don't know, tool if you're for Hellenism, for example, or the stone uh, hyacinth, which is like a, a zircon. That is associated directly with Apollo and the Pythia, so his oracles. There are certain things that are stones were used, but they weren't necessarily used in the way that we use them today. And the way that we use them today stems from the New Age movement and not the witchcraft movement. I honestly I feel very similarly that, and I feel like everyone's going to come for me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, for to me, I think crystals are useful for intention setting, but I think they're not, like, they're not a requirement 
and people aren't necessarily like a better witch for doing crystal grids or something like that. Mm-hmm. I use quartz for literally everything. So yeah. Yeah, I feel I feel similarly. I, I guess I'm again kind of like agnostic to it. Like I, I love crystals just because I like collecting them and I like geology and I think they're really cool to look at. Um, so I have a lot of them at home, but mostly what I use them for are like offerings or setting up an altar, that kind of thing. So for example, I might use rose quartz for an altar to Aphrodite. Now, I don't think that there's any association in antiquity, correct me if I'm wrong. It's just that I happen to know that, you know, it's, it's, it's a pale, soft pink and it's associated with love in kind of modern correspondences. And therefore, to me, it seems like it's a positive kind of offering. But yeah, it's really, it's not because I think there's anything inherent to that stone. It's just because, like you say, it's intention setting. It's it's all about the associations that I have. And yeah, I, I like to hold the pretty rocks. <laughs> Basically, that's, uh, that's about it. Yeah, and, and I want to clarify. I don't I don't think there's I don't want anyone to think that I think there's anything wrong with crystals. I also have rose quartz on my Aphrodite altar. And like I, I love them for altars because I think they're just very aesthetically beautiful, which I think it lends itself to focus and it, it's one of those visual reminders of oh like rose quartz manifesting love or I don't know if you're too working with glamours or something manifesting sort of self-love and just those correspondences and it just like feels right but I think there's a difference between demanding that crystal worship versus using it to to help you like your tools are there to help you it shouldn't be about the tools I guess is my my take I I agree with everything that you you all have said. I think it would be really beneficial for us to maybe as a community revisit crystals and utilize them more as like how like how they're formed and how they're grown. Like crystals we know they form because of, you know, intense pressure over a prolonged period of time. And I think that itself as a correspondence, which has like scientific basis behind it, could be really interesting and, you know, a bunch of different types of spell work. I think that is a more kind of realistic and like grounded way of using crystals, I guess, like in my personal opinion. It was interesting. I think, Fel, it was you who brought up the idea of crystal grids. While I don't necessarily believe in kind of the vibratory properties of crystals in reference to like you know high and low vibrations and whatnot I do think that you could use crystals and crystal grids in combination with like geomancy and that would be a great way to incorporate them into your practice um, in a way that's very meaningful and connects to the universe with the geomantric side of things rather than just kind of looking at the crystal itself so I do think they have their place in the community like you know like Kenny said I think they're beautiful and I'm a little jealous of people who have these stunning like crystal collections, but I certainly don't don't view them as something that can like elicit change by itself. I do think it's a tool because of that. It serves more as a placebo tool. <laughs> is that a thing um, than anything else? Yeah, the other weird thing is that I, I guess I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Astro. There are loads of like really interesting crystal applications, like crystals and computers, piezoelectric crystals. Crystallography, X-ray crystallography, loads of really cool things. But the vibration thing is just not backed by science. I think that's my issue with it. So obviously, like the belief in the vibrations is probably the placebo effect that people are experiencing. But there are so many interesting aspects of them scientifically that just don't really get explored. 
And I guess I feel a bit sad that, that there's a bit of a disconnect there because, yeah, they can they can be really interesting culturally. They can be really interesting scientifically. And I don't really feel like occult communities marry those things effectively. I can only imagine using, like you mentioned X-ray crystallography, which for people who are unfamiliar with what this is, it's essentially a technique that we use to study the structure of things on like a molecular level. So if you want to know what the structure of a protein is, you can do X-ray crystallography. You'll get out a particular spectral pattern. And then based on that, you can do some analysis to determine a molecular model for what the protein would look like at a specific like given time. That would be a really interesting way to think about it, right? Utilizing a crystal as a kind of way to investigate or see kind of the inner nature of something that you cannot maybe see visually. I think that would be a great like kind of correspondence to use in regards to crystals. And it's that kind of creativity that I think we're missing because everyone's so concerned or drawn into this idea of the higher vibrations of certain crystals and you know so on and so forth even though that really doesn't have any kind of scientific backing besides like the obvious you know yes crystals do vibrate we know they have certain you know vibrational patterns but they don't change they remain the same because of the crystalline structure so yeah i think it'd be great to consider x-ray crystallography as like a way to set a particular intention in fact i'm gonna do that now (laughs) that we've mentioned this All right, now that we've maybe stopped our tirade, well, stopped our discussion with crystals and whether they are a placebo effect or not. So we've talked about placebos and nocebos and what those are and kind of what it means within a scientific community and then also how we maybe see it within the occult community. But let's talk about how placebos aren't predictable and how nocebos are also an observable effect. Like we mentioned earlier, Nocebo is an observable negative effect. And this is when like when something negative develops because you were treated or you, you know, did something. In my personal opinion, negative insinuates something bad. But I also think a nocebo could be when nothing happens. And this is seen a lot in spell work where intention and will is not used appropriately. Um, I think indirectly it can lead to negative side effects like the development of imposter syndrome, which I've dealt with in my practice, not seeing immediate results and feeling like a failure, which will also lead to imposter syndrome. And eventually sometimes to people leaving their practices. We see this kind of nocebo effect also in spell work when things, you know, quote unquote fail. And I think setting intentions or, or putting will behind a particular spell can turn a nocebo into something that can have a specific effect. And this is kind of one of the reasons why I think intention or will, kind of the oomph, whatever you determine that to be behind your spell work is so important. What are, what are your all thoughts on that? Yeah, it's weird because I think Fel kind of alluded to this with OCD and it happens. I also have OCD. So this kind of is something that I think about a lot. But there's a lot of kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess, here. If you, if you believe something is going to fail, then it will fail. Or maybe you have an intrusive thought about something failing, then maybe if it does not work out as you expected, was that because of what you did or is it, was it because of the intrusive thought interfering? So yeah, there's a there's a lot of shadow work that's important to do to constantly evaluate your intentions, constantly evaluate your will and, and what you're doing. Because I think that it's easy to kind of self-sabotage if you're relying on this, especially this like psychological model. Um, and so making sure that you're really specific about what it is that you're doing and you're really assured in yourself kind of helps to brush off those effects of it. I know what you guys think. Yeah, I guess like for me, I think that's why I do more 
deity work as opposed to like I don't do a whole lot of actual spell work. I do primarily rituals or like yeah, like I mentioned deity work. Like I celebrate a lot of various holidays. So yeah, I think part of the reason why I do that is is because of what I was talking about with nociboing myself <laughs> or the fear of doing that. But I I think to me by actually externalizing my thoughts, I think in some ways it reinforces the the spell that I'm trying to do. So that way later on, if I have an intrusive thought, it, I, I am able to distance my, my work that I've done from that thought. I don't know. That's something I literally wrestle with every time I do any spell work. So it's a work in progress, I guess. But it is something that I think about a lot. Yeah, I feel I feel kind of similarly about that actually, and I also do more deity work as a result. Although even even with deity work, I find myself kind of questioning. Like, I guess in Hellenism, there's this idea of being kind of spiritually pure and pious, and sometimes I find myself doubting. Like, oh, am I going to not find favor with ex deity because I'm not kind of spiritually spiritually pure enough? And then I'm like, is the fact that I'm questioning this going to interfere with that? And it just kind of becomes this like vicious cycle. So for me, shadow work is is kind of part of keeping on top of that cycle so I don't like self-sabotage <laughs> my own interactions with divinity and it's kind of a constant process I'm not sure if it's just my neuroticism or whether other people deal with that kind of thing yeah I deal with that a lot <laughs> especially the ritual purity I'm like wait but I I was going to do a ritual and I like did cleanse myself with the uh, with care nips and then I walked away do I now have to do it again and so sometimes I have to like be like okay <laughs> like let's uh let's be more open-minded here yeah it's like i had a thought i'm like was i impure am i impure am i impure for having that thought oh god oh, <laughs> it's just a it's a mess <laughs> i feel that though i i deal with that a lot when it comes to like certain ceremonial rituals and the things that you you say sometimes the actions that you take it's like oh you know i like maybe i mispronounced the name even though i do like take great care to try to pronounce things correctly or you know i you have to lift your arms for like 20 plus minutes. It's like my arms are getting tired. Like, is, am I going to, is something bad going to happen? Because I, you know, put them down at, you know, my waist level and kind of just like hold them out. Those, those kind of doubts like do definitely show up. And I think sometimes they can lead to a kind of nocebo effect, but it's, that's normal. I feel like we all deal with that um, in our practices 100%. So to wrap it up, let's just kind of give our final thoughts. Let's assume for a second that it is all woo-woo. <laughs> like we're all crazy. None of this actually exists. In magic, is the placebo effect bad? Like is it is it a bad thing that we can bring about positive results from doing something that has no actual like physical benefit or meaning? I have mixed feelings on this. Firstly, I don't want it to be all in my head. Um, so I, I, I would rather that it were not, though I do think that there is, you know, as we've discussed, kind of placebo and things. I also think it depends what the placebo effect is being used for. So I want to bring up this example from the scientific community where they investigated using placebo versus an actual medicine, albuterol for asthma. And they found out that although both groups, placebo or the albuterol, felt a lot better. The physiological results showed that the albuterol actually gave the better results. So basically, the people with the placebo felt better, but they weren't getting medically better. And so I think for certain things, you know, medical things, go to a doctor, don't rely on spiritual stuff, even if the placebo feels like it's working, it might not be working. 
but other than that, yeah, I think it can definitely be useful in terms of kind of color correspondences, setting intentions, and sort of more spiritual development, as we discussed. But it has to be accompanied by a lot of self-reflection so that you're not self-sabotaging. Not so that you're not self-sabotaging and that you're setting your will appropriately. Yeah, I completely agree with you that in the example you gave, like the, the placebo effect in regards to like magic should never be a replacement for current medicine. I don't think any of us would recommend that here. They won't have the same effect, even if it does make you feel better. Feelings are psychological, but they don't cure diseases. That being said, when it comes more specifically to spell work, I think the placebo effect can be just as useful as the spell actually being successful. You know, I would be lying if I said that every spell I've done had the same amount of focus and will and intent behind it. In fact, there's, you know, a few that I can think of immediately that certainly didn't meet, you know, the criteria of what I would consider a good spell. Yet, while a couple of them never manifested, they did offer a level of comfort and they helped in some ways. My mind goes back to something that I think we mentioned earlier on in the episode, which is that even if it is the placebo effect, like seeing that candle lit or seeing that crystal can serve as a reminder that in and of itself is a benefit, maybe not biologically or physiologically but psychologically it might remind you to do something or you know say a prayer or whatever it might be is that a placebo effect i don't know maybe kind of it sort of fits the definition but it's certainly not a bad thing another interesting perspective i think here is that the placebo like the lens of the placebo effect is a good way to view failed spells even if a spell fails that doesn't mean it was entirely unsuccessful if that like self-love spell for instance, didn't change how you thought about yourself, maybe you're still experiencing anxiety or you're still having negative thoughts, it might be considered a failure in that regard. But if it forced you to take time for yourself, even doing introspection would fit in here. Does that mean that it ultimately didn't work? That's up to you and your definition of what work means. But my point is that you can view these through the lens of the placebo effect and still have an appreciation for them, for spells or anything that ultimately fails. And that's a perspective that I think can be very useful to us as practitioners and kind of rewire how we think about failure in regards to spell work or not performing a ritual correctly or forgetting to put out an offering and, you know, so on. Phil, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I was just thinking. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, ultimately, so like, as I mentioned in the beginning, I initially, at least in one part of my practice, I wouldn't say the very beginning, but the re-beginning of my practice I was coming from a place where I I couldn't, I just physically couldn't make myself believe in anything other than sort of my own intentions and my own will. And so a lot of the things I felt like I was doing was primarily placebo effect. Ultimately, I I don't think, I, I don't think it's bad. If In fact, I think in a lot of ways, like, like you were mentioning, like if you're doing a self-love spell, just the fact that you're sitting down, I mean, there is psychologically something going on for you even if it's just all in your head I mean it's very useful there or or if it's you know getting you off your butt to go get a job or something try really hard and like really like crank out a great cover letter (laughs) generally I don't think it's harmful but I also agree with what Henny said of you know I don't I don't want it to be all in my head and I think there's there is value in that as well but ultimately I think if it even if it were all in your head and it was all just placebo I think you know hey I'm taking time out for myself to slow down and it's physically doing something for me in my brain either way 
Yeah, definitely. I also hope that it's not all in my head, which is why we began this podcast. (laughs) Trying to make sure that it's not all in our head and that we can actually have some kind of fundamental basis behind the things that we do and think about within the occult community. So actually, I had one more question, but we can cut this up if you uh, want to. (laughs) I was just reading through the notes and I was thinking about blinding and I was thinking about placebo and how basically placebo occurs because you are not blinded to the work that you do for yourself. If you do a spell for somebody else, is there a placebo effect there? That's an interesting question. I think it would depend on whether you told them or whether they asked, because if they do that, then they're no longer blind, right? But I think generally, if they if you do it and you didn't tell anybody, then I don't think that there would be a placebo effect for them in that particular instance. But there might be when it comes to you looking back and analyzing the spell that you did yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm just thinking there's like no way for it to be double blind, right? Because even if even if they don't know about it, you've done it and therefore you're going to, yeah, you're then going to be analyzing their actions. You're going to be maybe modifying your behavior around them. Same if you did like a self-love spell for somebody else. Maybe you're like really happy that you've done the self-love spell and then you're going to go and make them a few extra cups of tea and you're going to, you know, look after them more. So I'm just, I'm just really curious about this because I don't know that there's a way to kind of test it, but it's interesting to me to see the way that these effects might kind of propagate between people. Yeah, sorry. Just just, just thought when I was reading through the notes, like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting once it's applied in like a more group setting. I was actually just thinking about this. So like I primarily come at my practice from like a Hellenic perspective and have a lot of witchy housemates. And it's funny how like some of the things that I do rub off on them. <laughs> and I think that's just the nature of people. But I don't, again, yeah, I also don't know if there would be a way to really quantify that. Like if I was doing something with my housemates to like, I don't know, see if we're all reacting the same way to this one spell we all did together. I think it's I think it's interesting. I think there's something there. I also don't know how easy it would be to examine. And we all have different correspondences and things so that because things aren't universal as we discussed. So yeah, maybe it wouldn't work in quite the same way for us and them because we just have different kind of associations. Yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. To our viewers, if you have an idea for an experiment to test this theory, let us know. That'd be super interesting to to talk about. But that is the end of this episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will see you next week. 